You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Just a heads up, this episode contains references to sexual assault. Please take care while listening. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Ambitious, intelligent, and fearless, journalist Sandy Fox would do anything for a story. And the tall, handsome, younger man smiling at her at the hotel bar was about to become her biggest story. Her wit and beauty attracted men wherever she went, and younger men were a favorite. And though she didn't care much for the floral tie her new admirer wore, his movie star good looks and hair she later described as the color of scotch and water intrigued her. But still, she politely declined his offer to dance. It had been a trying day. Fox had spent the better part of it trying to get an interview with former Vice President Spiro Agnew. Unsuccessful, she just wanted to unwind with a drink or two. In November of 1974, journalism was still mostly a man's job, but she was determined to succeed. Divorced and in her mid-40s, English-born Fox had recently accepted a one-month trial with an American newspaper. They paid for all her expenses and flew her to Atlanta. Alone and bored, she left the bar and headed to the Atlanta Constitution office, hoping to entice fellow journalists to show her around town. No one offered. Fox returned to the hotel bar to find the handsome man still there. He introduced himself as Daryl Golden and asked if she had changed her mind about that dance. This time, she accepted. They hit it off and sat and talked for a while. He told her that he had traveled quite a bit and planned to drive to Miami the next day. She told him she was also traveling and leaving for West Palm Beach in the morning. Golden suggested they share a ride. Fox choked that he could be a serial killer for all she knew. The two laughed, then she finally accepted. 
They spent the night together, and Golden told her he wouldn't live long. His lawyer had secret tapes in a vault, and someone was bound to kill him. He suggested that Fox write a book about him. Despite this odd behavior and her misgivings, she spent the next two days traveling with Golden. Once they arrived in West Palm, though, Fox bid him farewell. Golden pleaded for one more night. She declined. The following day, she learned that Golden had picked up the wife of a fellow journalist and attempted to rape her before she got away. As it turned out, Daryl Golden was actually Paul Knowles, the infamous Casanova killer. He'd escaped from prison and had killed women in multiple states. Later, he'd admit to killing 35 women, though authorities only tied him to 18. One month later, Knowles died while attempting to escape. Fox returned to London with not only a story to tell, but the realization that she agreed with her former travel companion on one thing. She would indeed write a book about him. Fox hadn't intentionally placed herself in danger, but she wasn't the only female journalist who would do anything for a story. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. One day in 1885, the headline for the Pittsburgh Dispatch read, What Girls Are Good For? Erasmus Wilson, the father of five girls and the paper's most popular columnist, penned the story under the pseudonym Quiet Observer. In the article, Wilson stated that a woman's worth was housework and bearing children. He also said that working women were monstrosities. Perhaps naturally, women readers didn't take to Wilson's opinion— one angry woman anonymously wrote a lengthy rebuttal, pointing out that women, equally intelligent, were not given the same opportunities as men. In the workplace, they did their jobs as well as their male counterparts for half the pay. The reader eloquently pointed out that a woman's shortcomings were the men who held them back. Not one to complain without a solution, the author made several keen suggestions to enrich the lives of women and the state of society. The letter caught the attention of George Madden, the paper's editor. He published a notice asking for the anonymous author to step forward. And when Elizabeth Jane Cochran walked into his office, he offered her a job as a reporter. And so began her wild career. Elizabeth was no stranger to hard work and pushing to get ahead. She had 14 siblings. Her father, Michael, had 10 children with his first wife. When she passed away, he wed Mary Jane Kennedy, also a widow. Kennedy and Cochran had five children together. Elizabeth was born on May 5th of 1864 and became her father's 13th daughter. Superstition about the numbers seemed to do little except make her more ambitious. Michael Cochran died when Elizabeth was six years old. Although he'd been a successful judge and prosperous landowner, his untimely death presented a serious financial hardship for his second family. Some sources say his second family had very little to live on by the time the estate was divided among all his children. Others say Michael died without a will, leaving Mary without access or claim to his estate. Either way, the family struggled to make ends meet and became destitute. Early on, Elizabeth realized that survival meant earning a decent wage. Given the limited choices presented to women, it was a monumental task. But Elizabeth was smart and very determined. At 15, she enrolled in a small school to become a teacher, but dropped out when she could no longer afford classes. Instead, the mother and daughter moved to Pittsburgh to run a boarding house. 
She was just 18 when she penned her controversial response to Wilson's article, and after accepting the job as a reporter, Elizabeth got straight to work. The editor wanted her to have a catchy pseudonym, and her fellow journalists tossed around a few suggestions. One of them suggested Nellie Bly, and it stuck. Pittsburgh songwriter Stephen Foster had made the name famous in his song Nellie Bly, though he spelled Nellie with a Y instead of an I-E. The lyrics portrayed a young woman with fortitude and grit, traits Elizabeth possessed. And with that, Elizabeth Cochran became Nellie Bly, a reporter for the Pittsburgh Dispatch. Her new career gave her the freedom to shine a light on a subject she was passionate about, women's issues. While she wrote about all injustices, she primarily focused on working women. Her new career seemed nearly perfect, including the salary of $5 a week, at least for a while. Bly's articles were highly controversial in the Victorian era. In her first article, titled The Girl Puzzle, she argued that women needed better opportunities, especially impoverished women. Even more radical, Bly made a case for some women to remain single. She titled her second article Mad Marriages, which called for divorce law reform. Bly didn't stop there. To get to the heart of another story, she went undercover, working in a factory. Women at sweatshops worked for pitiful wages. They endured unsafe working conditions and unreasonably long hours to earn more money. Bly thought wealthy businessmen taking advantage of women made for a great story. The factory owners didn't agree. They had money and power, and immediately pressured George Madden to stop printing the stories. Fearing repercussions from the city's elite and powerful, Madden reassigned Bly to the societal pages to cover more woman-appropriate topics like gardening, social events, and fashion. The reassignment didn't sit well with Bly. She proposed that the paper send her to Mexico to write an article about life under dictator Porfirio Diaz. Unfortunately, the assignment was cut short, and Bly returned home, where Madden promptly assigned her to the societal pages again. Bly wanted more out of her career and quit. She wrote a note to Erasmus Wilson, addressing him by his pen name. Dear QO, she wrote, I'm off for New York. Look out for me. Signed, Bly. For six months, she applied to one newspaper after another. No one wanted to hire a woman journalist. Finally, she landed an interview with John Cockerill, the managing editor for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. The paper had a long-standing reputation for provocative and sensationalist stories and captivating headlines. Cockerill wanted someone who could deeply investigate tough topics and write powerful stories. Bly assured Pulitzer and Cockerell that she could get the job done. The men said that she'd need something wild and over-the-top to secure the position. In fact, they had just the assignment. Go undercover at the Blackwell Island Insane Asylum. For years, rumors had swirled around the conditions inside Blackwell. There were whispers of cruelty and neglect. The job wouldn't be for the faint of heart, they warned. Did she have enough courage to endure a stay at Blackwell, and could she manage to fool doctors and staff into believing she was insane? Bly replied that she most definitely did, and could. Cockrell cautioned her to not write sensationalism for headline's sake. She must tell the truth, good or bad. Again, Bly agreed. She assured them that getting in would be easy. All she needed to do was look and act like she had lost her mind. 
And the real question was how her editors would get her out. Cockerill shrugged and replied he had no idea. Bly took the job. Her editors left it up to her to figure out how to get inside Blackwell. She decided on the persona of Nellie Brown. The initials matched her own for simplicity's sake. For a while, she considered asking friends for help. But that would have required them to act and pretend to be poor. Blackwell only took in those without money. She decided the best plan was to leave them out of it. She found tattered second-hand clothes to wear and rehearsed dazed expressions in front of a mirror. She practiced acting strangely and stayed up most of the night telling herself ghost stories. Fully in her new role, Bly rented a room at a boarding house. She shouted about murder and mayhem and accused her fellow boarders of being insane. That first night, one of the boarders had a nightmare about her. The next day, the rest of the tenants became so terrified of her that they called the police. Bly later wrote that her performance was the greatest of her life. The police took her to court to stand in front of a judge. Bly continued to play her role. The judge didn't take long to send her to Bellevue for an evaluation. Now, all Bly had to do was fool the doctors. As the doctors poked, prodded, and questioned her, Bly stared blankly. She told them she had no idea how she got to New York. After the doctors determined that she was not drugged, they declared her insane. Bly listened as the doctors examined another woman, Tilly Maynard. No matter how many times Maynard asked for a test to prove her sanity, the staff refused and locked her away for being difficult. Another woman, an immigrant from Germany, pleaded with the doctor in her native language. Unable to understand her, he declared her anxiety and pleading were signs of insanity and ordered her committed. Bly was stunned. Without any translator or family, this woman and those like her would most likely live out the rest of their lives at Blackwell. Bly quickly dropped the Insanity Act. As it turned out, being committed had little, if anything, to do with mental illness. She and the others were ushered onto a ferry and taken to Blackwell. The 120-acre island stretches along the East River, running alongside Manhattan from 51st Street to 88th. Blackwell, a later renamed Roosevelt Island, had one more name, Welfare Island. The island contained more than the asylum. It included prisons, hospitals, and charity housing for the needy and disabled. All told, 11 institutions existed on the island in 1872. The asylum, which had been expanded to accommodate around 1,000 patients, now housed 1,600. Just 16 doctors were assigned to care for all of them. Bly gathered her courage and allowed the staff to take her inside. She made friends with fellow inmates and asked for their stories. She found many were not clinically insane at all. Immigrant women who couldn't speak English had been declared incompetent. Indigent women without husbands or family had also been committed. Given their treatment, Bly had no doubt that anyone who arrived sane wouldn't remain that way long. Patients suffered immense cruelty from the doctors and staff. The staff forced Bly and the others to sit motionless without speaking on benches for up to 12 hours. Anyone who dared complain or resist was beaten or threatened, sometimes with sexual violence. They were harnessed together like livestock and made to pull carts. Meals consisted of moldy bread and other rotting food. The staff didn't provide utensils, forcing the women to tear apart their food by hand. 
Each patient was doused with buckets of cold water instead of showering. At night, she and the others slept with pillows stuffed with straw and blankets too thin to keep them warm. In the dark, a woman sobbed and pleaded with God to let her die. Over several days, Bly witnessed more abuse. Tilly Maynard suffered a seizure. Instead of offering help, the nurses cursed her. One told the others that a fall to the floor might teach Maynard a lesson. Nurses threw another woman into a closet for muttering to herself. The staff slapped and punched the patients. Nurses nearly choked one woman to death. The patients were tied up with bedsheets and dunked in frigid water. Beatings with broomsticks were common. Doses of morphine and coral hydrate were administered liberally and created addictions in some patients. Doctors continued to examine and question Bly. The more she declared herself sane, the more they doubted her. After ten excruciating days, her editor sent a lawyer to secure her release. Freedom was bittersweet. Although she was glad to put the experience and Blackwell behind her, Bly felt determined to help those she'd left behind. In October of 1887, the first installment of her story, titled Behind Asylum Bars, hit the streets, and Bly became an instant media sensation. Authorities immediately launched an investigation. Doctors and nurses scrambled to cover up the allegations. Patients who had been committed were released or transferred to prevent them from speaking to investigators. The investigators pursued the charges for months, and no one was happier to be summoned before a grand jury than Nellie Bly. Despite the asylum's attempted cover-up, the jury believed her account. Bly and New York Assistant District Attorney Vernon Davis worked to bring about reform in mental institutions. A bill was passed allowing additional funding. Regulations monitoring staff and patient care followed. After it was over, Nellie Bly returned home. She slept easier, knowing that she'd not only helped those she'd left behind at Blackwell, but also other patients in mental hospitals throughout the state. After her Blackwell Asylum expose, Bly's career took off. She'd proven that women were equally capable of investigative reporting as their male counterparts. Two years later, she made the news again. She asked her editor at the World News to send her around the world, though not as an investigator. Bly suggested a publicity stunt readers would love. She would travel around the globe and try to match Jules Verne's fictional voyage around the world in 80 days. Paper sales soared as readers kept track of Bly's whereabouts. The paper hosted a contest with the prize of a European trip for anyone who could guess Bly's return date. While in France, Bly stopped to meet Jules Verne. Briefly. The clock was ticking, after all. She arrived back in New York 72 days later, beating the fictional record. Bly had become a household name, and one of the most well-known journalists in America. Although the paper sold more copies than ever, her editor refused to give her a raise or a bonus. She left and went on tour as a lecturer and novelist, recounting her trip around the world. Employment came knocking once more when a publisher contracted her to write fiction for three years, earning her far more than she ever had at the paper. When new editors took over the world news in 1893, they convinced Bly to return. But by the age of 30, she retired from reporting and married Robert Livingston Seaman, the millionaire owner of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. She co-ran her husband's company, even designing a milk can and patenting the first 55-gallon steel drum. Robert died in 1904, leaving Bly to run the company alone. She provided employees with health care, libraries, and even a gym. The company failed, though, 
a factory manager's embezzlement helped bankrupt it. Bly returned to writing, covering women's rights for the New York Evening Journal. She accurately predicted that women wouldn't get the right to vote until 1920. Her number of firsts weren't complete, though. Bly became the world's first woman to cover the front lines as a foreign correspondent during World War I, where she was briefly arrested when authorities mistook her for a British spy. She continued writing about the war after returning to New York. In 1922, Bly became ill with pneumonia. She died at St. Mark's Hospital at age 57 and was buried in a simple grave at Woodlawn. In 1978, the New York Press Club purchased a proper headstone for her gravesite. And in 1998, Bly was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Four years later, she and other women journalists were honored on American postage stamps. Even then, Nellie Bly wasn't done. A monument was erected in 2021, consisting of multiple pieces sprawling along a walkway. The faces of four women, each rendered seven feet tall in bronze, interspersed with large mirrored spheres that invite the viewer to see the statues and themselves in the reflections, all leading to a bronze statue of Bly's face, observing all. Designed by artist Amanda Matthews, the memorial honors Bly's courageous life and outstanding journalism, along with other women who've helped reshape the world. The monument, named The Girl Puzzle after Bly's first article, stands in Lighthouse Park on Roosevelt Island. The location isn't far from where she went undercover at Blackwell Asylum. The asylum itself, along with many other original buildings, fell into disrepair. An octagon-shaped tower is all that's left. I've been there. It's a quieting place. Once a house of horror, Blackwell now stands in ruins and in the shadow of the Bronze Monument. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus, even more for the whole family, like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. J.C. Penney, make everybody count. On February eighth of nineteen o seven, Evelyn Nesbitt took to the witness stand, heart pounding. All eyes were on her. Yet it wasn't the black curls framing her flawless complexion that caught their attention. It wasn't her famous beauty or status as a well-known model that had everyone's focus. It was her testimony, 
She recounted the events as they'd unfolded with Stanford White, New York's top architect. And while he was well-known for designing homes for the city's wealthy elite, he harbored a dark secret. Evelyn told the court how Stanford had insisted she'd drink the champagne he'd handed her, despite telling him that it tasted terrible. Everything went black shortly afterward. She awoke naked in a room full of mirrors and realized what had happened. The memory caused her to tremble and collapse on the stand. I can't, I can't go on, she sobbed. The court waited anyway. Evelyn bravely pushed on with the events. When she realized Stanford had raped her, Evelyn screamed. Stanford told her it was over now and that she should be quiet. He threw her a kimono to put on and left the room. For a while, she screamed harder than before. Evelyn raised her eyes to look at the courtroom, primarily filled with men, except for the small table in the corner where four women sat. In 1907, women weren't permitted in a courtroom unless they were relatives or witnesses. The women, Dorothy Dix, Winifred Black, Nicola Greeley-Smith, and Ada Patterson, weren't either of those. They were journalists sent to cover what some called the trial of the century. Yet Stanford wasn't on trial for sexual assault. Evelyn had been called to testify in the murder trial being conducted against her husband, Harry Thaw, a famed heir to a railroad fortune. Evelyn worked as a professional model, posing for everything from the Gibson Girl drawings to several top magazines. She served as an inspiration for Anne of Green Gables. Her beauty meant that she had plenty of suitors, including Stanford White. She was 16 when they met, and he was 48. Though Stanford was married, he groomed Evelyn and her mother for what was to come. He bought them expensive gifts and paid for their apartment. Stanford had a long history of grooming young girls for sex. He and other members of the Union Club participated in orgies and other sexual escapades. Reportedly, the ultra-rich knew of Stanford's affinity for underage girls, and that depravity made the story much more interesting to the public. Even after the assault, Stanford pursued Evelyn with the help of her mother. Feeling helpless, Evelyn remained trapped in the abusive relationship for six months. When she turned 17, Evelyn broke away from the relationship and dated 21-year-old actor John Barrymore. Unfortunately, both Stanford and her mother conspired to end the relationship. Barrymore was down on his luck, and Stanford had plenty of money. But another suitor was equally taken with Evelyn, Harry Thaw. He first met her while she starred in the Broadway show The Wild Rose. He attended 40 times, sending Evelyn flowers and lavish gifts. Aside from his attraction to Evelyn, Harry knew about Stanford's preference for having sex with minors and felt compelled to save her. When Evelyn developed appendicitis, Harry was at her side at the hospital. While she healed, he offered to take Evelyn and her mother on a trip to Europe. After their arrival, Evelyn told Harry about the attack. Harry misused drugs and frequently experienced fits of rage and mental instability. Evelyn knew this, but when Harry proposed, she accepted. The two married on April 5th of 1905. A year later, in June of 1906, Evelyn and Harry attended a musical at Madison Square Garden. Harry caught sight of Stanford, sitting a few rows away. Harry stood, fists clenching. Evelyn asked to leave. She thought her husband was behind her, but when she reached the elevator, he was nowhere to be found. Then, she heard the shots. When the police arrived, Harry insisted he'd shot Stanford for the atrocities committed against his wife. 
The case was a field day for the press, and the four women sitting at the table in the courtroom took to Evelyn's story with enthusiasm and heart. When their stories appeared, journalist Irving Cobb commented on their emotional retelling and dubbed them the Sob Sisters. Despite this derogatory nickname, it's said that the women's stories helped affect the trial's outcome. After two trials, Harry Thaw was found not guilty by reason of insanity. All four women had successful careers, telling human stories in ways that, like Nellie Bly, reshaped journalism. American Shadows is hosted by me, Lauren Vogelbaum, researched by Jenna Rose Nedarcott, and produced by Jesse Funk and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro. The first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at gainbridge.io. Visit gainbridge.io/parityflex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.